It's time to think about the Bible like you never have before. This is Christian Questions. This podcast centers on godly principles, family values, and honest dialogue in a politically free zone. After the podcast, check out our other episodes, all our Bible study resources, videos, download the CQ app, and more at ChristianQuestions.com. Today's topic is, Why Would God Bless Two Immoral Women? Coming up in this episode... We all sin, but when we consciously violate God's basic rules of morality, we often end up being labeled with a harsh stigma. Sometimes that stigma never leaves us. The lives of two Old Testament women who acted in very immoral ways illustrate this. How did they get past it? How do we? Now, here's Rick, Jonathan, and Julie. Welcome, everyone. I'm Rick. I'm joined by Jonathan, my co-host for over 20 years. I'm thankful to be with you both. And Julie, a longtime CQ contributor, is also with us. I love learning from the women of the Bible. Jonathan, what is our theme scripture for today's episode? Joshua 2.12. Now, therefore, please swear to me by the Lord, since I have dealt kindly with you, that you also will deal kindly with my father's household and give me a pledge of truth. God does not reward sin. On the contrary, he abhors it. Sins, Satan's first rebellious thoughts against God will result in his eventual destruction. Adam's sin of disobedience has and continues to result in the power of sin, evil, and death plaguing our world to this day. Enter Tamar and Rahab. These are two Old Testament women who both acted immorally and yet found their way into a very unusual position of God's favor. They were two of only five women listed in the genealogy of Jesus. How can this be? Did God make an exception for them? What was it that they did or didn't do to have the privilege of having having Jesus be a descendant of their bloodlines? The answers to these questions are found in the fascinating accounts and decisions of their lives. In addition to the genealogy of Jesus, there's one other amazing connection between Tamar and Rahab. It has to do with a scarlet thread, but we'll get to that later. All right, coming up later. Let's begin with Tamar, as she is. She lived several generations before Rahab. Now, Tamar's most talked about biblical action. Now, this is the thing that is most talked about about this woman, is her dressing up like a prostitute to deceive Judah, who was one of the 12 sons of Israel, into having sexual relations with her. So that's the thing that everybody remembers Tamar for. So before reading the account, let's take a look at a few key points about Tamar and who she was. Well, she wasn't a harlot by trade, so she used prostitution to deceive one man, and that happened to be her father-in-law. Well, she was not a wicked person, though what she did is uncomfortable for us to discuss. We need to put her in historical context. The Bible isn't advocating that we emulate what she did because there are deeper lessons shown in her story that we'll get into. So we need to understand some of that background to get into these lessons. To understand Tamar's deception of Judah, let's also understand the kind of man Judah was at that time. And I want to stress at that time. So let's begin by looking at Genesis chapter 38. We're going to look at verses 1 to 5, but start with just verses 1 to 2 right now. And it came about at that time, and that is around the time the ten brothers sold Joseph into slavery, that Judah departed from his brothers and visited a certain Adolamite, whose name was Hira. Judah saw there a daughter of a certain Canaanite, whose name was 
Shua, and he took her and went into her. So Judah, as the patriarch of the tribe of Judah, he's the patriarch. I mean, the tribe is named after him. He's one of the 12 sons of Jacob, the 12 sons of Israel. Judah married this Canaanite woman. And we're going to see how he so easily seems to continually ignore God's favor as the story unfolds. So, Rick, this is well before the law and before they were a nation. God spoke to them through Abraham's promises and through Joseph's dreams. Yep. And we're here in Genesis chapter 38, and it's interesting that we're going to interrupt this narrative of Joseph that started earlier in Genesis 37 with this really unusual story, and we'll see why as we get further in. Yeah, and this story—I'm oh, sorry, just Jonathan, one, 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 one quick thought. This story seems to be so far out of context from exactly. that story of Joseph, so it's an interesting thing to pause and consider. I'm sorry, Jonathan, go ahead. No problem. Continuing. So she conceived and bore a son, and he named him Er. Then she conceived again and bore a son and named him Onan. She bore still another and named him Shelah. The Jameson Fawcett Brown Bible Commentary says this, Like Esau in Genesis 26-34, this son of Jacob, casting off the restraints of religion, married into a Canaanite family. And this is not surprising that the family which sprang from such an unsuitable connection should be infamous for bold and unblushing wickedness. So you can see how this is all getting set up. Judah is going down a road that just is, is far off from father Abraham or his grandfather Abraham. So let's fast forward now because the scripture, the very next scripture in Genesis 38 verse 6 takes place many years later when his oldest son um, is old enough to be married. So Jonathan, let's go to Genesis 38. Uh, Let's do verses 6 and 7. Now Judah took a wife from Er, his firstborn, and her name was Tamar. But Er, Judah's firstborn, was evil in the sight of the Lord, so the Lord took his life. Adam Clark's commentary on the Bible says, what this wickedness consisted in, we're not told, but the phrase in the sight of the Lord being added proves that it was some very great evil. So yeah, and and we want to pause and and really see that. Er, this firstborn of Judah, did something that God saw as wicked enough to say, I'm taking your life for it. So this was no trivial thing. And so you have this dilemma that is before uh, Judah as he's looking to uh, create, create a family. So let's continue with Genesis 38, verse 8. Then Judah said to Onan, Go into your brother's wife and perform your duty as a brother-in-law to her and raise up offspring for your brother. So here we are going to need to pause for a moment and, and look at something called the Leverate Law because this is an interesting thing that, that Judah asks of Onan. Uh, According to the book called All the Women of the Bible by Edith Dean, uh, here's a quote. This Leverite law, it's one of the Bible's best examples, this, this story of this Leverite marriage law. This was the ancient custom of marriage between a man and the widow of his brother required by the Mosaic law in Deuteronomy 25 when there was no male issue and when two brothers had been residing in the same family property. The, name t- the law takes its name from the noun levir, meaning a husband's brother. Now, this way, there would be an heir to receive the dead brother's inheritance and carry on with his line. The widow, she still gets to be a mother and have someone care for her in her old age. And this was an important provision put in place to protect women in this patriarchal society. A childless widow had no one to care for her. And we know God approved of this arrangement 
because it would be codified by the Mosaic law hundreds of years later, what is only a custom now. That will be continued later by the Jewish law. So you have something happening that is very, apparently very typical at that time. But here's the problem. Onan proved to be wicked as well. He didn't. He didn't want to raise up offspring for his brother. And so he prevented Tamar from getting pregnant. Let's look at Genesis 38, 10 as a result of this. But what he did was displeasing in the sight of the Lord. So he took his life also. As you can imagine, this Leverite law would only work when people weren't being selfish. So a child from such a union would mean less inheritance for Onan. Firstborn males receive a double portion so that first child born to Tamar could claim heirs double share of inheritance because he was the firstborn. Onan really had more to gain with his older brother out of the way and no heir. But it wasn't what he was supposed to do. So here's what we have. We've got God's disfavor plain here because it says that the Lord took his life also. So this was great sin before God by these two sons of Judah. Now, here's the thing. Tamar was the innocent one in these events. She was chosen to be the wife of an evil man. He dies, and she was bound to be his brother's wife. And he's another evil man, but he dies as well. So Tamar bears no guilt here. Thus far, we have Judah, Er, and Onan all doing evil in the sight of God. Tamar is just in the middle of the evil. She's not perpetrating it. We have no sense of her contributing to it whatsoever. So here's what happens now. The two older brothers are now dead. And remember, Judah had three sons. Genesis 38, 11. Then Judah said to his daughter-in-law, Tamar, Remain a widow in your father's house until my son Shelah grows up. For he thought, I am afraid that he too may die like his brothers. So Tamar went and lived in his father's house. And uh, two interesting points from the, the verse, Rick. Uh, Shelah was too young, and Judah had no intention of giving him to Tamar. He looks at her as being cursed. He simply put her off. Many biblical commentaries assume Tamar was a Canaanite. Being sent back to her father's house would mean going back to a sinful community. And as an interesting side note, eventually Shelah did grow up and have a son and named him Er after his older brother. First uh, Chronicles 4.21 lists the generations of Shelah. So you see how things unfold and they're not unfolding in Tamar's favor, even though she is supposed to be the one who is protected in this environment. But it's, it's just not working out for her. So now some time passes. Let's go to Genesis 38, verses 12 to 14. Now after a considerable time, the wife of Judah died. It was told to Tamar, Behold, your father-in-law is going up to Timnah to shear his sheep. So she removed her widow's garments and covered herself with the veil and wrapped herself and sat in the gateway of Anaim, which is on the road to Timnah. For she saw that Shelah had grown up and she had not been given to him as a wife. Well, here's where the story starts getting uncomfortable. She dresses like a prostitute and waits for Judah to pass by, knowing that his wife had passed. Man, so it, it really starts to get very deep here. And you can see 
well, look, you look at, look at tomorrow and, and say, okay, what's happening? Well, per- perhaps Tamar saw herself as stuck in an endless uh, pattern of hopelessness. She, she was promised to be able to marry and have children, but she's instead locked away from that opportunity. As long as she was waiting for Judah's third son, she wasn't released to find another means of support from a different husband. She was entitled here to live in Judah's household, waiting for that third son to mature. And of course, a woman's role in that society may be hard for us to look at now, but it was to bear children and raise a family. And through no fault of her own, she's prevented from doing so, and she gets desperate. So she sees no way out. She, what she had in mind to do at this point was incredibly dishonest and sinful. But because she sees no way out, she's going to do it anyway. And again, can't stress enough, what she was about to do was deeply sinful. Two wrongs never, ever, ever make something right. So as we put this background into order, Jonathan, what we want to look at is immoral behavior in the light of God's blessings. What do we have so far? Judah acted in many sinful ways, yet God saw fit to bless him by his being the direct lineage of Jesus. Why? Well, God blesses in the context of his grand plan. He also blesses because of his promises. Sometimes those blessings come in spite of and not because of our poor behavior. Yeah, we want to make sure that we don't think of ourselves as so high and mighty that God's blessing is because I'm so good. Sometimes God's blessing becomes comes even if I'm not so good. And we're going to see a lot of that unfold, but there's some really powerful lessons to grasp here as well. So with the nation of Israel in its infancy, it looks like truly devoted followers of the God of Abraham <laughs> looks like they're scarce. Are we suggesting that Tamar has a right to the sin she is about to commit because of how she was treated? As we continue to unfold the account of Tamar, it is of the highest importance that we realize sinful thoughts and behavior simply cannot stand before God without judgment. What we need to focus on is the overall lessons in this account and how God can always bring forth good out of evil thoughts and evil actions. All right, so let's do a quick recap. Tamar marries Judah's evil son who dies. According to the custom, she marries his brother, but he's also evil and dies. So she's now entitled to marry the third son, but he's too young. And Judah, the father, has no intention of letting that happen, but he strings her along and tells her to wait out the years at her father's house. She realizes her circumstances will never change unless she takes matters into her own hands and comes up with this really uncomfortable plan. This is definitely what we would call today a dysfunctional family. Hmm. So, Jonathan, let's look at Genesis 38, uh, verses 15 to 18. When Judah saw her, he thought she was a harlot, for she had covered her face. So he turned aside to her by the road and said, Here now, let me come into you. For he did not know that she was his daughter-in-law. And she said, What will you give me that you may come into me? And he said, Therefore, I will send you a young goat from the flock. Wait, a goat? (laughs) Okay, times have changed a little bit. Continuing, she said, moreover, will you give me a pledge until you send this goat? He said, what pledge shall I give you? And she said, your seal and your cord and your staff that is in your hand. 
All right, so we've got this conversation, and what's happening? Tamar has set up a very sinful trap. But Judah, in all of his ego and all of his godless thinking, absolutely takes the bait. Tamar had asked for a pledge, a security deposit, and she specifically asked for Judah's seal, cord, and staff. So, Julie, let's go a little bit further into that. So the source is a really great book called Really Bad Girls of the Bible by Liz Curtis Higgs. And she said this, the seal or signet, as it says in the New King James Version, was a small hollow cylinder engraved with Judah's identifying markings, which he pressed into soft clay on documents like a signature. It hung around his neck on a cord where he could keep it safe and handy when needed. His staff or walking stick, according to the contemporary English version, might have been fancy or plain, a simple shepherd's crook, or a symbol of clan leadership. So the bottom line is Tamar actually protected herself from any retribution from Judah by receiving these pledges, which were essentially undeniable symbols of Judah's identity. And they're kind of like getting his driver's license and his credit card. <laughs> they would have specifically identified Judah. Important factor here. They're, 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 you're looking at that and you're seeing a clear-cut identification. So there, there's, a, there's a plot building here in, with all kinds of twists. Genesis 38, uh, 18 and 19. So he gave them to her and went into her, and she conceived by him. Then she arose and departed and removed her veil and put on her widow's garments. That's revealing, put on her widow's garments. We see that she goes back to doing what she was supposed to. And that's an important factor here because she is being obedient. Now, she did something very wrong, but she's being, she goes right back to being where she's supposed to be, even though it's very disadvantaging her future. That's what I'm trying to say. So let, let's continue in Genesis 38. Jonathan, let's go to verses 20 and 23. When Judah sent the young goat by his friend, the Adullamite, to receive the pledge from the woman's hand, he did not find her. So, so he asked the whereabouts of the temple prostitute and is told, there is none there. So he reports back to Judah, continuing. Then Judah said, let her keep them. Otherwise, we will become a laughingstock. After all, I sent this young goat, but you did not find her. So what, what happens here? When it was revealed that there was no temple prostitute in that area, Judah simply shrugged it off. His attempt seemed to have been, I tried to pay her, but she didn't show up. She can keep those things I gave as a pledge, even though they're basically worthless to her. He's probably just happy he gets to keep the goat, <laughs> right? And was he too embarrassed to go back and pay her himself? I mean, why is he sending this friend? But hmm. Well, look, a lot, lot of questions, but what we have is immoral behavior and an immoral cover-up for an immoral behavior. I mean, let's, let's just keep it. Let's see what it really is. And, you know, sin's consequences always have a way of coming back to plague us. This was the case with Judah. All of the things that he's doing— it's going to come back to him. Genesis 38, now let's go to verses 24 to 26. Now it was about three months later that Judah was informed, your daughter-in-law, Tamar, has played the harlot, and behold, she is also with child by hollow tree. Then Judah said, bring her out and let her be burned. Well, Judah's guilt in not taking Tamar to his son was his way out to save face and to prove she was no good. So disgracing her was easy for him. The scripture says he was going to bring her out and let her be burned. Really? Yeah, you know, and, and that's a hard scripture to understand because I don't know that um, the, the, the full meaning. There's several commentaries that go a couple of different directions on what it means to let her be burned. The bottom line of this 
is there is a tremendous disgrace, and Judah is determined that she will face utter, complete, total disgrace. After all, she, she violated everything he told her to do. So he is setting himself up as the big, powerful, I told you, and she is now becoming the victim. His reaction and anger are over the top, and it's revealing. When you oh. live sinfully, sometimes you do a lot extra to cover that by pointing at somebody else's sins. Yeah, it's easy to point at other people's sins, isn't it, Judah? Yeah, 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 exactly. So you have this setup, and Judah is enraged, and so now she is going to be dragged before him. So, Jonathan, let's go to verse 25. It was while she was being brought out that she sent to her father-in-law, saying, I am with child by the man to whom these things belong. Please examine and see, hmm, whose signet ring and cords and staff are these? Judah recognized them and said, She is more righteous than I, inasmuch as I did not give her to my son Shelah, and he did not have relations with her again. So Tamar is dragged before him. She presents the, this evidence. She's presenting her defense and her wrongdoing. And in so doing, she is plainly revealing Judah's sin as well. And Judah sees it. He can't hide from his own sin. And what, what happens here is, is he has to admit her righteousness is greater than mine. Now, neither one of their righteousness was very good. But hers, he's saying... I am, I am more in the wrong than she was. And so th- that's, a, that's a powerful statement here. Yeah, his wrongdoing was that he neither freed her nor facilitated the Leverite vow like he was supposed to. But isn't it interesting that he isn't including, oh, I don't know, visiting a prostitute uh-huh. in his wrongdoing? Yeah, well, we, you know, we, God has a way of <laughs> taking care of those things and putting those things in order and creating consequences. And Judah had a lot of hard things happen to him. Uh, as he went through his life. So, but what we are finally seeing here is a hint, a hint of humility and righteousness in Judah. And we will see more of that come, come later in his life. So let's fast forward now six months later. So between verse 27 and 28 in Genesis uh, 38, Tamar is now giving birth to twins. So we're in Genesis 38, 28 to 30. Moreover, it took place while she was giving birth. One put out a hand and the midwife took and tied a scarlet thread on his hand, saying, this one came out first. This scarlet thread is very interesting, and this is the thing we were talking about at the very beginning. This marked the firstborn of the twins, or so they thought. Let's continue with Genesis thirty-eight twenty-nine to 30. But it came about as he drew back his hand, that behold, his brother came out. Then she said, what a breach you have made for yourself. So he was named Perez, Afterward, his brother came out who had the scarlet thread on his hand, and he was named Zira. The meaning and spelling of Zira's name varies depending on the source. Adam Clark's commentary in the Bible says that it means risen or sprung up, applied to the sun, rising and diffusing his light. In other words, he should have risen, meaning been born first, but for the breach or breakthrough of his brother. So they assumed Zira was the child through whom the blessings would come, but Zira pulled his hand back in and out came Perez, the actual firstborn. Perez, that name, it means to breach, to come out and break forth. So... Why are we talking about all of this? Well, first of all, it's in the scripture and it bears discussion, but this actually is a very important development and it's teaching a very important lesson for down the road. So let's put this together. 
the firstborn son, we know that historically the firstborn son was destined to be the favored son. Zira, who appeared to be first, was marked as first, but ended up second. We've already read that. Now remember, Judah, the father of these twins, is the patriarch of the tribe of Judah. So this tribe of Judah ends up being very important because when when, when uh, Judah's father, Jacob, or Israel, dies, he gives blessing to all 12 of his sons. And the blessing he gives to Judah includes the following reference we're going to read from Genesis 49.10 to Jesus coming from his bloodline. Jonathan, Genesis 49.10. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until Shiloh comes, and to him shall be the obedience of the people's. Okay, so the prophecy is that Messiah, Jesus Christ, will be born generations later from the bloodline of Judah. Now, remember that scarlet thread? The scarlet thread was given to the child who was supposed to be the firstborn. Now, we know that according to the genealogy that Perez, the other child, the, the, the one who was born first, literally, was the actual firstborn. What does that mean? Well, think about this. The scarlet thread is on the wrist of the, the, the secondborn who everybody thought was first. Hmm. Jesus was born to the Jewish nation. They had the opportunity to be the firstborn of the kingdom, but they weren't. They rejected him. They pulled back. So instead, Perez was born first and received the firstborn privilege. Now, we're looking at this scarlet thread, and we're making an application. That red scarlet we're applying to Jesus. Hang on to that thought. We're going to come back to that much later. But Perez is given this firstborn privilege, and we're going to see uh, this is the way it was when Jesus came. We've got two New Testament scriptures on this. First, Romans 10, 19. First, Moses says, I will make you jealous by that which is not a nation. By a nation without understanding will I anger you. So the Apostle Paul quoting Moses saying that you're going to be made jealous by a nation that's not a nation. And he's talking about the Gentiles the usurper of the privilege of following Jesus. Just like Israel followed Moses, the Gentiles were the ones to follow Jesus. Also, First uh, Peter 2.10. For you once were not a people, but now you are the people of God. You had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. So in the establishment of God's kingdom, you have the Gentiles that take the place of the Jewish nation because they rejected Jesus. That firstborn, supposed firstborn, was not the firstborn. Perez, the, quote, usurper, was the firstborn, and that's where the Gentiles are pictured. So you see that in these two, in these twins, you, it shows prophetically that the Gentile nations would take the place of where Jesus was born to. It's very, very, very interesting, subtle prophecy that we want to call attention to. So, that in place, let's wrap up understanding Tamar's experience. Well, Tamar was blessed with bearing the child she was promised. And she was blessed with being the mother of the tribe of Judah. She was blessed with bearing twins. And she was blessed with those twins being a picture of what would follow in Jesus' day. But the question I'm sure everyone's thinking is, how is it possible that such blessing can come from evil actions? And that's an important, important question. And what we find is that 
just because someone does evil doesn't mean they stay evil. And we have to remember that. And here's an example. God used both good and evil to unfold his plan. Several years later in Judah's life, we're looking at Judah again, he and his 10 brothers are brought before their brother Joseph, whom they had sold into slavery. Now remember, Joseph is in Egypt. They don't know Joseph is alive. He's at the right hand of Pharaoh. He's in the process of saving the world, literally. And they're coming because they're hungry. They go before him, and he's this powerful person. They have no idea who he is. Joseph, because he has a conversation with Judah, reveals himself to them. And it's a very emotional moment. And Joseph tells them that how God has, in spite of their actions, protected and blessed them. They sold him into slavery. They, they wished him to be dead out of the picture. And yet God still would bless them after all of that. And here's what Joseph says to Judah and his brothers in Genesis 45, verses 5, and then 7 and 8. Now, do not be grieved or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. For God sent me before you to preserve life. God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant in the earth and to keep you alive by a great deliverance. Now, therefore, it was not you who sent me here, but God. Well, Joseph tested Judah to see if he had become remorseful for selling him into slavery and to see if he had devotion for his father and Benjamin, Joseph's younger brother. He passed the test with doing everything good and right. In Genesis 50, verse 20, we remember those amazing words from Joseph. You meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. Remember when we started, I said Joseph's story starts in Genesis 37 and gets interrupted by our narrative here in Genesis 38. Why? Well, one explanation might be that it forces us to look at the contrast between Judah and Joseph. We see Joseph's faithful character compared to that of Judah at this point. And so the, the story of Tamar is in the context of all of these things. And she did do something very, very wrong, but she is blessed anyway because it seems, according to Scripture at heart, that she is, she is a, a law-abiding, righteous individual. So let's wrap up this portion, this story of Tamar, immoral behavior in the light of God's blessings. Sometimes God and his wisdom can bring forth blessings when only chaos is visible. Tamar was an example of this. This does not excuse us from the creation or the consequences of the chaos we contribute to. We are still responsible to make things as right as we are capable of before God. And let's not ever forget that we are responsible to make things right. And, you, you know, you look at the experiences of Judah and Tamar, and they both had difficulties after this, but Tamar was blessed with being in the genealogy of Jesus Christ Lord and Savior of all mankind. That stands for something. So it is fascinating to see how the dark details of some ancient lives can reveal the bright purposes of God's plan. Now that we have seen how God worked through Tamar's sins, how did he deal with Rahab? As we fast forward through several generations, Israel is now ready to enter into the Promised Land. The Canaanites and the city of Jericho stood ready to be conquered. And God would once again use someone who would lie and was not of good reputation as a tool of His will being done. Here is where we meet Rahab. Rahab was a Gentile prostitute living in the idolatrous land of Canaan. The Canaanites were infamous for wickedness. They were into superstition, witchcraft, sexual worship, 
and I hate saying this, human child sacrifices. The uh, message of Deuteronomy by Raymond Brown says this, Canaanite worship was socially destructive. Its religious acts were pornographic and sick, seriously damaging to children, creating early impressions of deities with no interest in moral behavior. It tried to dignify, by use of religious labels, depraved acts of bestiality and corruption. It had a low estimate of human life. It suggested that anything was permissible, promiscuity, murder, or anything else in order to guarantee a crop at harvest. Now, we think about this woman, Rahab, in this environment, she would have had little hope to change her way of life. But through her contact with men over the years, she heard the stories of how the God of the Israelites was with them and how he was feared by the surrounding nations. She believed that he was the one true God. So you have the, the core of this story, this, 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 this harlot in this horrendous society ends up becoming a hero of God. So let, let's take a look at this. Before attacking Jericho, now Israel is going to attack Jericho under the leadership of Joshua. So before attacking, Joshua sends two spies into the city. They came upon Rahab's house. So let's drop in to this account. It's in Joshua chapter 2, 1 through 21. We're just going to look at verses 1 through 6 right now and then develop this interchange with Rahab. So they went and came into the house of a harlot whose name was Rahab and lodged there. This was told to the king of Jericho, and the king of Jericho sent word to Rahab, saying, Bring out the men who have come to you, who have entered your house, for they have come to search out all the land. But the women had taken the men, two men, and hid them. And she said, uh, yeah, the, yes, the men came to me, but I didn't know where they were from. It came about when it was time to shut the gate at dark that the men went out. I don't know where the men went, but pursue them quickly, for you will overtake them. But she had brought them up to the roof and hidden them in the stalks of flax, which she had laid on the roof, on the roof. So she she hid them. Now, here, here's what Rahab does. She not only hid the spies on her roof while she's saying, don't know where they went. You know, she, know. She's, she's lying. And then she sends the king's men in the wrong direction. They went that away. Go get them. So you've got all of these actions to protect these foreigners. And she has no surety whatsoever of being spared from what's going, what's going to come. But she's absolutely doing the right thing. Now, hold that thought. She's doing the right thing because she knows what's coming. Let's just look at Proverbs 12, 22 for a moment. Lying lips are an abomination to the Lord, but those who deal faithfully are his delight. So she protected the good guys, but in a bad way. So now what? Well, of course, as a prostitute, lying to save God's own is really the least of her sins. <laughs> yeah, true. <laughs> true. You know, and, and it, it is a matter of putting things in perspective, okay? Not that you condone lying, but the idea is that she is a Canaanite woman, and she knows what's going to happen. She, Rahab had a clear understanding of, of what's, coming, what's coming to her city. Here is where we begin to, to understand the why and the how of her developing faith, and, and, and we begin to see a tremendous strength in her that you would have never guessed from the outside in. Looking at it uh, through Joshua chapter 2, we're now going to go to verses 8 to 13. Now before they laid down, she came up to them on the roof. And said to the men, 
I know that the Lord has given you the land and that the terror of you has fallen on us and that all the inhabitants of the land have melted away before you. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites whom you utterly destroyed. Our hearts melted and no courage remained in any man any longer because of you. For the Lord your God, he is in heaven above and on earth beneath. Man, you think about the faith in that statement, after the faithful actions of hiding them. Rahab knew this battle would be lost because she knew you can't win when the God of heaven and earth is against you. So she would now do the only sensible thing left to do, and that is ask for mercy. Continuing with verse 12. Now therefore... Please swear to me by the Lord, since I have dealt kindly with you, that you will also deal kindly with my father's household and give me a pledge of truth and spare my father and my mother and my brothers and my sister with all whom belong to them and deliver our lives from death. So here we're beginning to see the true character of this pagan woman emerge as it was revealed in in the light of truth. And it's interesting to me that she says to these spies, give me a pledge of truth. Now, in Tamar's account, we have her asking for a pledge. Now, it was in a very different environment, but she's asking for this promise because she has stepped up and risked her life on their behalf. Again, we she was raised in this horribly corrupt environment, but when the power of the true God is brought before her, she's immediately full of faith. And this shows us we're not trapped by our upbringing or environment. God calls us in whatever circumstances we are in. Come up higher. Personally, when I was young and had moved out of my parents' home, I got myself into a bad environment and was living an improper lifestyle. But God called me when I was in these surroundings and changed my life. Rahab is a great example of the power of God to transform us from our sinful state into the person he wants us to be. And so we're seeing Rahab before this great transformation. This is her merely her very first opportunity to grab hold of righteousness. And we're seeing how she embraces it and is trying to do everything possible to support uh, the God of heaven. That's really the bottom line. And her honorable approach to the Hebrew spies is met with an honorable approach, uh, an honorable response from them in relation to her asking for this pledge of truth. Joshua chapter 2, verses 14 and 15. So the men said to her, Our life is for yours if you do not tell this business of ours, and it shall come about when the Lord gives us the land that we will deal kindly and faithfully with you. Then she let them down by a rope through the window, for her house was on the city wall, so that she was living on the wall. Excavations show the city was enclosed with a massive double wall with houses built on the rampart against the outer city wall. And this would have been an ideal vantage point for the spies. Think about it. From this elevated position, they could readily observe both the interior of the city on one side of the wall and the surrounding terrain where they had to escape to on the other side. So you've got a strategic point, And by God's providence, you have a strategic person at that strategic point who is actually helping the cause of eliminating the sinful Canaanites. So, so let's go back to the account now. Rahab, Rahab goes further. She then instructs these two spies how to get away without being seen. Joshua 2, verses 17 and 18. The men said to her, 
We shall be free from this oath to you, which you have made us swear, unless when we come back into the land, you tie this cord of scarlet thread in the window through which you let us down and gather to yourselves into the house, your father and your mother and your brothers and all your father's household. And there's a scarlet thread, a scarlet cord showing up in this account as well. So the spies are very, very specific as to how Rahab's daring rescue is going to need to take place. They need the scarlet cord to be in the exact window that they escaped through. Further, they needed all who would be rescued to be lodged together in that only secure place which would be left in Jericho once the onslaught started. So they're being specific about honoring what she said, and it's important that she follow through on the details. Joshua 2, 19-21. It shall come about that anyone who goes out of the doors of your house into the street, his blood shall be on his own head, and we shall be free. But anyone who is with you in the house, his blood shall be on our head if a hand is laid on him. But if you tell this business of ours, then we shall be free from the oath which you have made us swear. She said, according to your words, so be it. So they departed, and she tied the scarlet cord in the window. So, in other words, we can't be responsible if you or your family leave the house. If any do, they will be destroyed. And and so all the details are put into place. And you see the interchange here uh, and, and how they're, they're from both sides covering the details and also how Rahab is so concerned about her family. You know, it's not about, oh, just save me. Get me out of here. This is about her family. She, she's a person of, of, of integrity and she, she's a Canaanite but not a Canaanite at heart. That's what we're seeing. We're seeing a heart that's so much bigger, so much better, so much stronger than that. So remember now, she's got that scarlet cord hanging out of her window because it seems like she tied it right after they left. Like, okay, don't know when this is going to happen. I'm going to be ready from this moment forward. It would be many days before faithful Rahab and her family would be rescued. That scarlet cord was the symbol, it was the marker, and it was the guarantee of their coming deliverance. Scarlet cord, picture of Jesus, symbol, marker, guaranteed. You see where all of this is going. So Jonathan, as we wrap this part of the account up, the looking at immoral behavior in the light of God's blessings, what do we have? Sometimes God chooses someone who never had any of his favor to set an example of faith. Rahab, in spite of her paganism and occupation, had a heart for God. He used her sincerity, flaws and all, to serve him, and she was richly blessed as a result. So you see, God can choose those whom he will choose if their heart is there. They may be in the wrong environment, but he can see that, and he can pick those who will serve him from the inside out instead of like the Pharisees did from the outside in. This is what Rahab was, and it's such an important lesson for us. You know, you, you look at her, and it's Rahab the harlot. But this is, there is so much more here than that. So it's an important story. It's an important account to get our heads wrapped around. And, you know, so, sometimes the greatest heroes in a story come from the least likely places. It's all about having a heart for God. We are seeing how Rahab and Tamar were blessed by God. What connected their blessing and what can we learn? Well, as we're about to observe Rahab's deliverance, we need to pause and consider the magnitude 
of the lives these two women live, both Rahab and Tamar. They are both listed in the lineage of Jesus, and they both had questionable life experiences. So what are the godly messages of righteousness that we can learn from the hardness of their lives? So before we get into those lessons, let's go to this siege upon Jericho. Joshua chapter 6, uh, we're going to go 15 to 25, but right now, Jonathan, let's just do 15 to 17. Then on the seventh day, they rose early at the dawning of the day. They marched around the city seven times. At the seventh time, when the priests blew the trumpets, Joshua said to the people, Shout, for the Lord has given you the city. The city shall be under the ban, and it all that it is in it belongs to the Lord. Only Rahab the harlot and all who are with her in the house shall live, because she hid the messengers whom we sent. Well, just, just, just an important aspect here. Joshua is shouting out the instructions. And in his shouting out the instructions to take the city, he says, only Rahab the harlot and all who are in their house will be spared. But he mentions that to all, everybody. It's a, it's a big part of what they're doing. That shows the respect and honor that, that was built with this Canaanite woman. Go ahead, Julie. And during the siege of the city, when these Israelites marched around the wall for six days, they would have been able to see and make a note where Rahab's house was located. Why? Because of that scarlet ribbon. Yeah, and it was there, and every time you go around, it's like, yep, there it is again. There it is. Yep, there That's it is the again. One. <laughs> so, Don't touch that. So the onslaught's about to begin, and obviously Joshua's given the message. Rahab has put the cord out the window. All of the priorities have been set in place. So, Jonathan, let's go now. Joshua 6, uh, verse 20. So the people shouted, and the priests blew the trumpets. And when the people heard the sound of the trumpet, the people shouted with a great shout, and the wall fell down flat so that the people went up into the city, every man straight ahead, and they took the city. Well, the interesting thing, the wall of Rahab's house, where the scarlet ribbon was tied, was the only part of the wall standing. What a miracle of God's care for someone who stood up for his chosen people. Yeah, and guess what? Modern archaeology supports the biblical record. In 1907 to 1909, there were German excavations, and they uncovered a small part of the northern city wall of Jericho from the time of Joshua, where the poor and undesirable lived. And it's plausible that this is the area of the city where Rahab's house was located. We're going to include photos of this. It's about an eight-foot wall that's still standing called Rahab's Wall. We're going to include the photos in this week's Companion CQ rewind show notes where we provide every scripture we quoted today and much of our commentary these are free every week at christianquestions.com and on the christian questions app so and that and that's it's thrilling when you see this part that's standing today to this day when everything else was was falling down and it's interesting because the soldiers it says everyone they all ran straight ahead they all knew exactly what they were supposed to do and they went in and they took this city those who were um delivered by Rahab's kindness and faith, were tasked with now delivering Rahab and her family. So those spies were specifically assigned, you go there, you know who, what she looks like, you take her and her family, and you bring them to safety. Uh, we're in Joshua chapter 6, uh, verses 22 to 24. Joshua said to the two men who had spied out the land, go into the harlot's house and bring the woman and all she has out of there. 
as you have sworn to her. So the young men who were spies went in and brought out Rahab and her father and her mother and her brothers and all she had. They also brought out all her relatives and placed them outside the camp of Israel. So Rahab and her family were the lone survivors of the battle of Jericho. She is credited with being the first Gentile convert to Judaism. And doesn't this show the integrity of the leadership of Joshua? He sent the same two men who made that original promise to Rahab to fulfill their end of the bargain. But this was an unusual siege in that no one was allowed to remove any belongings as spoil of war, according to Joshua 6.17, except Rahab and her family were allowed to keep everything they had. Wasn't that nice? And so you you see the justice of God coming through in this in, in a very, very big way. And so when you, you look at this, say, okay, so what what what's to become of Rahab? Well, back to Joshua 6, verse 25. Rahab the harlot in her father's household and all she had, Joshua spared. And she has lived in the midst of Israel to this day. For she hid the messengers whom Joshua sent to spy out Jericho. I love Rahab because at her first available option, she makes brave, faithful choices. She turned away from her culture and her lifestyle, and she marries a man named Salmon, and she became, she became the mother of Boaz, who we remember from the story of Ruth, and down that lineage comes King David and eventually Jesus. What a privilege. So we had mentioned that you know the, the two women we were talking about today, Tamar and Rahab, are both mentioned in the genealogy genealogy of, of Jesus, but her, her, um, her son Boaz marries Ruth, and she's another one that's mentioned there. And so you see that there's a tremendous faithfulness and a tremendous reward for that faithfulness. And Rahab is also, also listed in Hebrews chapter 11 as one of the faithful ones of old, Hebrews eleven thirty one. By faith, Rahab the harlot did not perish along with those who were disobedient, after she had welcomed the spies in peace. She's only one of two women to make this prestigious list of faithful ones. Trivia question, the other one, Sarah, Abraham's wife, is the other woman there. But I started to get a little defensive that here she can't shake that Rahab the harlot label. But I realize that this is an important reminder that God's glory can shine through any of our circumstances. And as a principle, I found Romans 5.20. It says, God's law was given so that all people could see how sinful they were. But as people sinned more and more, God's wonderful grace became more abundant. And I think her story really magnifies the grace of God. And that's our story. When Rahab is described in the lineage of Jesus in Matthew 1, verse 5, she's not called a harlot. She lost that description when she married and had a child. And so you see that you don't want to call it a happily ever after, but we do want to call it a faithfully ever blessed. You know, that's where Rahab went, and she became a strong Jewish woman. It's just such a tremendous, tremendous example. Someone whose life before you wouldn't want to get near and now someone whose life you want to learn from. What a difference. So let's sum up the life of Rahab. Well, she was a Canaanite prostitute, and she seized upon righteousness when the opportunity came to her. Her lies were not her defining moment. As a Canaanite woman, they were a means to an end. When Rahab could express her faith in God, she immediately put that faith in action. 
Rahab's faith is what defined her. Her past, including her lies, were never condoned in Scripture. We all sin, we all make mistakes, and we should all see ourselves in Rahab because we can rise above our environment and above our past choices. But we have to leave our past in the past. You can't bring it with you. We have to do what Rahab did and leave the city and become what God wants you to become. So we've got these two stories in place. Now, Julie, you mentioned at the very beginning there was another connection. Oh, it's so cool. It is so cool. So now let's look at that other connection that we mentioned right at the start. Both Tamar and Rahab had experience with a scarlet cord. And you remember the, the two. Remember with Tamar, the scarlet thread represented the gift of Jesus being given to her second born twin, the one they thought would be born first. And picture of the Jewish nation and so forth. With Rahab, it was the scarlet cord that she hung out of her window, which saved she and her family. That scarlet cord, the deliverance of Jesus from sin and death, from literally a life of sin and then sure death, the, the, the blood of Jesus. Now, the word for scarlet, here's where this gets really fascinating. Jonathan, what's this word for scarlet? Well, the Hebrew word is shawni, which means crimson, properly the insect or its color. Also, stuff dyed with it. Okay, so it's stuff dyed with a color red. I mean, okay, so let's dig a little deeper. Another word directly li- related to scarlet, Jonathan, uh, What this is uh, Strong's number 8438. What is that word? Well, the Hebrew word is tola, which means a maggot, specifically the crimson grub, and clothes dyed therewith. So these two Hebrew words, Shawnee and Tola, are used together in such a way as to be grammatically correct in Hebrew. Shawnee refers to the color the worm makes, and Tola is the worm from which the dye is made. So the context determines if it means the color, the worm, or the dye from the worm. Let's say you had a sentence, I am a worm and not a man. It wouldn't read, I am a scarlet and not a man. So that's how you know which of these words to use. But basically, it's this special Tola worm. Okay, so we're talking about this great connection, and it's a worm. Wait a minute. Now, let's take a look at one really powerful use of this particular word. Psalm chapter 22, verse 6. And Jonathan, this psalm is expressing the thoughts and the heart of Jesus, especially when he's on the cross. This psalm starts out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So we know that this psalm was in the mind of Jesus as he is literally dying. And here's what it says in Psalm 22, verse 6. But I am a worm, Tola, and not a person, a disgrace of mankind and despised by the people. Worms in the Bible don't have a great reputation. In Gehenna, you've got the worm that never dies. Job likened himself to a worm, the lowliest of all creation. King Herod, eaten by worms. So everyone's going to want to ask, why would Jesus be described as a worm? And this is where the beauty of Scripture comes out, because this is a hidden meaning that is so very, very, very significant. Let, let's look at the details of this worm and this word scarlet and the blood of the worm and so forth. So let's lay out some of the details. The blood of the tola worm or scarlet worm is unique in that it neither coagulates or changes color. The scarlet worm plants its body into the trunk of a tree to give birth. It will never again leave the tree 
and it dies there. It lays eggs under its shell, protecting the young until they can live on their own. As the worm dies, it releases scarlet fluid that stains the children red. They receive their identity as scarlet worms by the death of the one who gives them life. After three days, the body of the mother turns white and falls from the tree. Isn't that interesting? Three days? And a quick quote from joydigitalmag.com. From the dead bodies of such female scarlet worms, the commercial scarlet dyes of antiquity were extracted. What a picture this gives of Christ dying on the tree, shedding his precious blood that he might bring many sons unto glory from Hebrews 2.10. Isn't this symbolism just beautiful? So dying on the tree, you have the three days, you have the scarlet that dyed the thread and the cord, the exact same uh, fluid from that worm. And you put it together and you see Jesus represented in the, in the thread around that, that baby being born, that the, the baby's wrist, and because Jesus was born to the Jewish nation. And you see the other end of Jesus' life, the sacrifice and the deliverance of his life in terms of Rahab and the court outside of her window. So you see Jesus represented in the beginning and at the very end, and how it was a picture of clear-cut salvation in all, in all ways. And then, of course, Psalm 22 puts it in order. So this, this worm and its red dye aptly picture our crucified Lord Jesus and his shed blood of redemption, and it ties the accounts of Tamar and Rahab unequivocally in, in a way that is just absolutely unique. So, so let, let's wrap up the, the lives of Tamar and Rahab. Just a few quick points here. Well, both women had no foundation of holiness on which to stand when hard experiences came. Remember, Tamar's only exposure to following the God of Abraham was whatever her father-in-law Judah showed her, and we know that that was certainly flawed. Rahab, on the other hand, she lived in an evil society and learned of God from whispers of the news of the day. And both women can be easily misunderstood and misrepresented because of their experiences. This shows us that the lineage of Jesus is marred with the sins of flawed people. But both women became valuable in the sight of God in spite of their sins. Their names would be mentioned in Jesus's genealogy, a list that includes only five women, Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, and Bathsheba in Matthew 1, 1 to 17, and of course, Jesus's mother, Mary. Both women are an example of what God can do with a broken and lost life if we let him. We sin, but with repentance, obedience, and Jesus' sacrifice, it can turn into blessing. So that's how we need to classify the experiences of these women. And you can look at their reputations, and you can look at the things that they're, quote, known for. But let's look at the things that God used them for and see the differences. So Jonathan, looking at immoral behavior in the light of God's blessings. Let's wrap this up. God hates sin, but he loves humanity. Tamar and Rahab are two shining examples of how God's providence can take sinful people, find the good in them, and use them for his purposes. As we strive to be righteous in his sight, let us always remember that left to our own devices, we are mere sinners needing Jesus. So, folks, as we wrap this up, let's take a look at the, the, these stories, these accounts, and realize that 
What everybody generally sees when they look at these things are the flaws, the difficulties, the sinfulness, the immorality, the bad choices. And what God saw was the potential. God saw the potential for obedience. He saw the potential for faithfulness. And he drew that out of the context of all of those other things. So it's a tremendous lesson. Let us make sure that when we see others, and we might see their flaws and their sins and their difficulties and their inconsistencies, to see what's in their heart. Because we want to see with the eyes that God sees. We want to read the way Jesus reads others, with love and compassion. That's what our Lord would have us to do, and that's what Tamar and Rahab show us. Think about it. Folks, listen, we really do want to hear from you. Give us your feedback or send us your questions and on this episode and other episodes at ChristianQuestions.com. Also, a big part of spreading the word about our podcast is subscribing to Christian Questions in your favorite podcast channels, such as Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Podbean, iHeartRadio, Google Podcasts, wherever you get your podcasts. Please rate us and review us. We greatly appreciate it. Coming up next week, what if I'm not good enough to go to heaven? Now think about that as a question. A lot of people would have that question. What if I'm not good? I'm not bad, but what if I'm not good enough to go to heaven? Talk to you about that next week.